You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thank you, Dean. Well, good evening, everyone. Happy Advent to you as we continue to think about Christmas and what's coming up. Um, a person, on a personal note, it's just a privilege and a joy to worship with you all, um, even in the season, even with everything that's going on. Um, I count it a joy and a privilege that we get to gather and we get to sing together, even with Mass on, and to hear God's word preached, even as you sit with Mass on. I still think it's, it's still funny to me. I still can't, can't get over it, but it is what it is, and we get to do it. That's pretty awesome to me, and I'm thankful you're, you're here today. Well, the world turned upside down. As you know, we've been going through Acts for quite a while, and we are in chapter 25, and if you're good at math, which I'm not, um, there are 28 chapters left in, 28 chapters left in Acts. <laughs> All right, here we go. Math. There are 28 chapters in Acts. <laughs> we are in chapter 24, which means I'm going to be dealing with chapter 25 to 28, um, next week. So uh, not all of that will be read up front, so rest assured. Um, that'll probably take half the time, but I'm going to encourage you to read that section. I, I am admitting I am betraying some of my convictions on expositional preaching here, um, but an attempt to round out Acts, and, and frankly, we got a lot of travel narrative going on between chapters 25 and 28, and then wanting, so just realizing that, then also desiring to start the new year fresh. I'm going to encourage you to read those chapters, and I'll send you out an email later this week. So if you've got time, um, you, or maybe make part of your devotions, read those particular sections in Acts. And then we'll start the new year out fresh with a new sermon series, and then we're going to have an eye toward the book of Ephesians. Um, i got it mapped out for 18 sermons. The more I think about it, it's going to end up being 30. <laughs> um, I love the book of Ephesians. It's, it, is, it is a treasure trove. So I'm looking forward to that. And then, Lord willing, after Ephesians, we'll get into the book of Nehemiah. So that's kind of what's ahead here. As for today, Acts 24. I entitled the sermon, Hope in God. I'm sure you saw those words right in the middle of our text. Um, I'm mentioning it now because that is where we're going to end. Because when you think about this particular passage, you're just like, what is there to hope in? We got a dude who's on trial. Like, what's going on? Yet that's what Paul says, hope in God. And that seems appropriate in light of our Advent season. So um, once again, I'm going to briefly pray, ask our Savior for help, and have the Lord instruct us through what he has already spoken. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we get to gather. What a privilege it is. And now as we come to your word, we don't want to come to your word um, just think of it as fickle, but we come to your word wanting to be instructed. So by the power of the Spirit, which is indeed at work in this church and in the individuals here, we pray that you'd help us to think well about what you have spoken and help us to apply. We don't want this just to be ethereal, but we actually want to take your word and apply it to our very lives, and we need your help. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me begin, begin with a question. Uh, what is going to happen to you after you die? Um, I, don't know, I know it's not uh, the most hopeful question to ask, right? Especially during Advent. This doesn't seem that way. 
But by the time I'm finished preaching, I want you to see it as a hopeful question to ask and then to answer as Christians. We ask the question, it feels very morbid. What's going to happen when you die, right? It's morbid. It's like, don't ask the question. But actually, it's a question that leads us to an answer of hope. And that's what I want to show you by the time I am done. To answer the question, what will happen after you die, is a question humanity has been asking since the beginning of time. Most religions have a response to that question. Non-religious folks or atheists have a simple answer as well. (laughs) Nothing happens after you die, right? It's all over. You just die, and those who remain on the earth grieve your loss. In other words, there's no hope after you die for the atheist and for many non-religious people. There's nothing. Last week in Acts 23, we saw the answer to the question that was generally raised while being interrogated by the Jews. Paul has this, uh, what I call a mic drop moment. So the Jews aren't happy with Paul and he kind of interjects and he says this, it is with respect to the hope, there's that word again, hope, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. I am here because of these two factors. There's a particular hope that I have and the resurrection of the dead. That's why you're so upset with me. Last week I had said hope more literally means eager expectation. Paul's hope in a future resurrection is not fickle, but it's based upon facts. Think about that. His hope in a future resurrection is not fickle, but it's based upon facts. And we want to base our faith upon facts. In, in one sense, faith is Hebrews 11.1. 1. You might know the passage very well. A lot of Christians learn to memorize this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. But even in this passage, faith is infused with an eager expectation of a future based upon what Christ has already done. The facts. And what are the facts? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of Paul's hope in a future bodily resurrection. Well, Paul's mention of a future resurrection resulted in this kind of mini war between two Jewish parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You might remember the Jewish Sadducees just kind of went nuts. They lost it. They, they were not having it. They do not believe in a future body resurrection. But the Pharisees were like, this is our guy. Paul's our guy, at least for this moment. <laughs> He is correct in saying there is a future physical resurrection for those who believe. The Pharisees read in the Old Testament that there's going to be a bodily resurrection after you die. That's where they base it off. You read the Old Testament, that's what they conclude. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees just kind of come to fisticuffs. The fight breaks out between the two parties. What separated Paul from his fellow Jews was that he was a follower of the way. You might have caught that last week, shows up two more times today. 
the way. He believed that the Messiah had come and the resurrection had begun in Christ. The stakes were high. Paul was on trial in this particular chapter, chapter 24, for nothing less than his Christian faith. The Apostle Paul indeed held the same position as the Pharisees in larger big picture concept. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul connects Christian future bodily resurrection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I hope you see the fundamental theological issue. It actually consumes chapter 23 all the way to chapter 28 in the book of Acts. The entire kerfuffle in Acts 23 was over the basic question about what happens when you die. But here's the rub and the reason why we need to keep reading our Bibles, right? There is no particular details of the resurrection in Acts 23. He just mentions it. So, there's going to be a resurrection. What does that mean exactly? What are the particularities of the future hope? Right? We want to know that. Well, the question is raised again in Acts 24 and then also Acts 26. In Acts 24 and Acts 26, Paul stands before two more separate trials. And in each trial, he reveals more about this resurrection. He uses the trials. Paul uses these trials as an opportunity to defend himself against unjust accusations, but to explain more about the resurrection, to explain more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's never a wasted moment for Paul, regardless of his circumstances, whether he's in prison, he's being persecuted or on trial. He's going to tell you about Jesus. Listen, I understand this is not the most Christmas-y message. You know, for the last two years, I've done Advent sermon series, and I love doing Advent sermon series. I love talking about the incarnation because it doesn't get spoken about enough, in my opinion, in Christian circles. I love it. But in light of not doing an Advent series, I want you to use this as an opportunity to connect the birth of Christ with his resurrection. That last week, I'm going to say again, fill in the gaps. Make the connections. Revel in the wonder and mystery of the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus. I want you to see how all components of the gospel fit together. Church history helps explain a particular detail about what will happen when there is a future bodily resurrection of the dead. It's a detail we shall see today. To connect church history with Acts 24, I want to read a few creeds, just part of them. Traditionally, creeds are theological truths, corporately and personally spoken out loud. You've got to think of a, of a day when most people were illiterate. They couldn't read or write, and so they would say things orally. So we have creeds and confessions. One of the earliest Christian creeds explaining the central theological tenets of the Christian faith is the Apostles' Creed. I, I think I cited this every Sunday growing up because of the church I was a part of. The last three lines of the Apostles' Creed is this. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We all say amen. I believe in the resurrection of the body. What does that exactly mean? <laughs> right? That's what Paul's explaining here. Then I believe in life everlasting. Forgiveness, resurrection, eternal life. So the resurrected body is connected to eternal life. 
Perhaps the most famous and well-known creed from church history is the Nicene Creed. Council of Nicaea, 325, kind of a big deal. Squashed a few heresies. A lot of people didn't like what was going on. But we had a creed come out of that. It was quite beautiful. And here's the last part of that creed. This is the creed that I had Dean read earlier. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's the last line of the Nicene Creed. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And that punctuation at the end, amen. As if it says, verily, this is true. Again, the same theme emerges here. Again, these are basic theological concepts that the Bible speaks about that they put into these creeds that we could learn and remember buried deep down into our heart. And perhaps my favorite ancient creed is the Athanasian Creed. You might not have heard of that one. Popular, not as poetic. But here are the last several lines. And notice the conclusion of what happens after a person dies. And I quote, For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, that is to say, the living and the dead. At whose coming all men shall rise with their bodies and shall give an account of their works. And they have done good, those who have done good shall go into this life everlasting. They shall, those who have done evil into everlasting fire. So the judgment comes and the wheat and the chaff are separated. Not as poetic, but equally rich in its theology. So do you see the inclusion of judgment in the Athanasian Creed here? Didn't get it right away in the Nicene Creed. But do you see the inclusion of a person giving an account for what he or she has done? Works in this creed and in the Bible are not salvific. That's not what's going on here. Meaning your good works cannot save you, but your actions still matter at the resurrection after you die. And as we read today, there will be an ultimate reckoning for the just and in the unjust. Or as the CSB version says it, which I like, the righteous and the unrighteous. There will be a judgment Even in Paul's direct evangelism to Governor Felix, which is the end of our chapter, he says to him and his wife, Drusilla, there's going to be a coming judgment. Felix did not like that. So what does all this have to do with Paul being on trial again? It seems like We have been going from one trial to the next. And if it seems like that, it's because we have been going from one trial to the next. The trial in Acts 24 serves as the context to the theological issue of resurrection and future judgment, which is not surprising. When you look at Acts or church history, we we see that theology is oftentimes refined and defined under intense persecution and opposition. But in addition to theology, which is important obviously, there are practical considerations in this passage, like how should Christians respond to false accusations? You ever thought about that? 
Is there a place for Christians to defend themselves? That's what's going on in Acts 24. Or should Christians just kind of take it on the chin, just like Paul did in Acts 23 when he was punched in the face for talking about his faith? Protecting what you believe might result in persecution, and it's essential to think through what it looks like to respond. Here's the $50,000 question. What does all this have to do with Paul's statement in verse 15, which is hope in God? How does a person hope in God when faith is being attacked and false accusations are being leveled? Let's find out. I want to... For the remainder of my time, I want to look at this passage with this flow in mind. First, we have these accusations. It's clear. He's on trial. When you have a trial, there's going to be accusations made. There are direct accusations, obviously, against Paul. Now, I want to explain the accusations from the, prosecu- uh, for the prosecutor's perspective, right? Second, Paul is allowed to defend himself against allegations. Get the allegations now. Paul gets a moment, and he gets to say a few things. And then Paul pivots in verse 14 to explain what he believes. So he's making several affirmations. And we want to look at those affirmations. It's interesting, Roman law, to give you kind of a context of what's going on here, Roman law is such that, it's, uh, that, that the accusations matter as opposed to it's inquisitional. So what's going to happen, if you make an accusation, you better bring the evidence about the person, about the accusation in which you are making. It's going to happen or supposed to happen face to face. That is what we see going on in this passage. And so by the time I'm done, I'm going to tie in Paul's private words to Felix because it is all connected. Let's get into the accusations. The accusations against Paul are threefold. First, the Jews said Paul was a troublemaker. Translated in the ESV is plague. Could you imagine being called a plague? You're a plague. Whoa. It's pretty intense. Well, the Asian Jews made a similar accusation against Paul in Acts 21. So this isn't new for Paul. They said Paul was causing trouble all throughout the world, right? So before he was in Jerusalem, he got all these missionary journeys where he's preaching the gospel. And the claim is he's causing trouble. Now, this is actually a significant allegation because from a Roman perspective, they wanted to ensure peace. You might have heard of Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. If it could be proven Paul was causing trouble, the Romans would have no problem condemning him. The Romans could do the dirty work for the Jews. Roman officials would scarcely concern themselves with matters of Jewish religion. They would take seriously any threat to Pax Romana. That's the first accusation. Troublemaker. He's a plague. The second accusation from the Jewish lawyer, Tertullus, is similar to the first but more pointed. Paul is accused of being the ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Paul is accused of being the leader of the Christian church, basically. On this point, Paul is gratefully guilty. He's like, yeah, you got that one right. From a Jewish perspective, Paul was causing Jews to wander away from faith. From Paul's perspective, he is proclaiming what the Old Testament naturally says about the Messiah. The second charge against Paul 
is therefore also aimed at all Christians. He's the leader of this Nazarene sect. That's verse 5. Tertullus is making a backhanded comment that all Christians are troublemakers and upsetting Roman peace. Therefore, the Roman government must act to ensure peace. Well, that's the second accusation. Here's the third one. And then we'll look at Paul's response to all the allegations. Paul was also charged with desecrating or violating the temple. Remember, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem is like sacred. There are rules and laws in the temple. You better not break the rules and laws. Um, there are houses that you go to, and there's houses that maybe I've been into, where um, you take off your shoes at the door. And then, um, you know, you don't put your glass down unless it's on a coaster. And then, you know, you have dinner, and it looks like you're at Downton Abbey. All the silverware is in the right spot or whatever. Like, there are rules and regulations and traditions, and when you're in that place, you just abide by them. Especially, though, when you're in the temple. To be honest, the Jews would not have cared about Roman peace, but they would have cared about the temple laws. What was the specific charge against Paul in the temple? The Romans did grant the Jews the right to enforce their ban on Gentiles and them accessing sacred parts of the temple. So no Gentiles were allowed in specific parts. The Asian Jews were the ones who charged Paul with violating this specific ban. If it can be proven Paul allowed non-Jews into the sacred parts of the temple, then the Jews could ex execute their own trial upon Paul with their own punishment apart from the Romans. But the question is, can the charge be substantiated? We'll find out in a moment. So the three charges leveled against Paul. Being a troublemaker and disrupting the peace, that was number one. Number two, being a leader among the Christians, which is like, yeah, I know. Number three, not keeping the temple laws. How does Paul respond? Here we go. After the prosecution rests, Governor Felix just says, you know, gives a nod, doesn't say anything. Verse 10, signaling an opportunity for Paul to speak. And what I want you to notice in Paul's initial statement are not words used to flatter Felix, unlike the... The, the words used by the prosecution in verses 2 and 3, but an acknowledgement of the fact that Felix, yeah, you are the judge over Israel. Yep, you are in that particular position. And then Paul says he's going to make a defense cheerfully. <laughs> I just picture in my head, I didn't, I didn't watch Law and Order until I got married to Sharice. I don't know what that says about her viewing habits, but... You know, I, I remember back in those, you know, the sitcoms or whatever, I'm like, I, don't see, I didn't see anyone cheerfully giving a defense. Like getting up there and being like, yeah. But Paul's like, I'm cheerful. And really, Paul has no reason to not be cheerful. As Paul says in chapter 23, and now in chapter 24, verse 16, Paul has a clear conscience before God and man. He knows he has not broken any Roman or temple law. He is well aware that what is on trial is not Paul, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what is going on here. Paul uses his moment as an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit can use Paul's words according to the will of God. 
Here's what Paul says in defense to the accusations. Charge number one, being a troublemaker. Paul knows the people in front of him have no evidence of him disrupting peace in the Roman Empire. He knows the accusations come from Jews who live in Asia who do not have the guts to show up to the trial and make the accusations themselves. Take a look at what Paul says to Felix at the end of verse 18. Paul says, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make the accusation. Should they have anything against me, they are the ones who need to be here. And then he says, and if these guys in front of me can substantiate the charges, well, let's see it. Let's see the evidence. Paul's like, hey, let's just get the record straight here. The Jews from Asia didn't show up, and the people bringing the charges have nothing. So, here we have an accusation with no evidence. Here is a contemporary thought and application from what we see from this first accusation. Because here's, frankly, kind of the sad truth. Because of sin and the reality of living in a broken world, false accusations continue to be leveled against innocent people. To be clear, there are times accusations are made and it's valid, right? Which is why you should want a court system to objectively look at facts. But false accusations are becoming the norm in our culture. Have you noticed that? I know I have. For example, every four years, and I, put, I wrote in here every four years thinking about general elections and it's like, now it's like, it seems like every day now, uh, political parties are flinging false accusations to the other side. And it's like newsflash, no particular party is pure. It's true, false accusations are everywhere. On a personal level, it might be the case that you have been the recipient of false accusations. I know I have, and I'm not talking about going on trial in front of a court. You know, with the proliferation of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, accusations come hot and heavy from the latest person who joins what I've been calling the keyboard warrior society. Gossip and slander abounds. You know, if that happens to a Christian or to myself, I must examine my own heart, or you must examine your own heart when you receive an accusation, but also... You must not participate in the social media madness that at times is the result of gossip and slander. The godly response is not to become a part of the problem in which you are the recipient. The better way forward is integrity and honesty. The way forward when false accusations are leveled is to uphold the truth. The way forward is to maintain hope in God, in what God is doing. Like we can even, at this point, put our own theology to the test. When you are faced with a false accusation, do you believe God is still sovereign and is providentially at work in your life to bring about good?
Now the next question could be, so can Christians defend themselves against false accusations? Well, sure, Paul defends himself without acting defensive in Acts 24. But we should also note, Paul sees the providence of God while on trial. Paul sees the trial as a gospel opportunity. Not a gossip opportunity, but a gospel opportunity. That's the first accusation. That's how Paul responds to the first accusation. He knows the truth. He knows who he is in Christ. He knows God is providentially at work. The Apostle Paul, regarding the second accusation, he was a lover of the truth. Therefore, he vigorously denied the first accusation, but did not lose sight of the gospel. On the second accusation, he knew he was guilty. In verse 21, he says, I am guilty of one thing. I cried out while standing among them. Remember Acts 23, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. That's what he was guilty of. So Paul admits to Felix, I am a Christian. And it's his faith in a future resurrection of the dead which has him on trial. So yeah, what the Jews say about Paul being a Christian leader is true. Fact check, true. Paul does not deny it. He does not run away from the claim. Actually, he goes headlong into the claim. So the question for for me and for you is that when our faith is put on trial, will we affirm our faith? Or will we shrink away? As Peter did when he denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times in Luke 22. Not guilty in the first charge, guilty in the second charge. Those two things are true at the same time for Paul. Now the third accusation. What about the third charge that he desecrated the temple? If you've ever read uh, the book of Romans written by Paul, it reads like a systematic legal defense. Paul's legal chops are obvious here as well. In verse 11, Paul clearly states this. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since we went up to worship in Jerusalem. It's like, I just got into town. And he says in verse 12, and they did not find me disrupting anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Causing a ruckus in the temple would be a problem for any person. And Paul says there is no way he was even in town long enough to gather a group of people to create the problem in which the Jews are claiming that he caused. As a matter of of fact, Paul arrives in Jerusalem offering alms to the poor and to worship in the temple. Translation, Paul arrives in Jerusalem continuing many of the Jewish customs acquired by Judaism. Now, why did Paul present a semblance of Judaism if he was saved? Once again, Paul believed Christianity is the natural outworking of what he reads in the Old Testament. So offering money to the poor is biblical, right? Worshiping Jesus in the temple or anywhere is biblical and acceptable and right. So in order to straighten out the record, Paul continues in verse 28. He says, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. That's the condition in which they found Paul. You want to know what the facts are? It's that. 
And they found Paul, not around, not with a crowd. He was worshiping. So Paul's like, prove it. He's like, guys, burden of proof is on you. You're the one bringing the accusation. You're the one who needs to bring the proof. Bring the evidence. The prosecution twisted claims without evidence. There's another clear contemporary application to how we see Paul defend himself here. He knows he is not guilty. He has nothing to hide. He knows he did not break Roman law or Jewish law. He is well aware that the trial is theological. Because he is confident that his conscience is clean and clear, he can simply allow the truth to prevail and just let the chips fall where they may. Now we can have the same approach for our lives. If false accusations are brought and the burden of, the burden of proof is, in, is on the party who brought the accusation, you, they need to show the evidence. And when there is none, then truth must abound. Now as kind of a side note, we should want any justice system to operate under an assumption that for a person to be guilty of a crime, it must be proven. Could you imagine a world where false and unsubstantiated accusations automatically win the day? Can you imagine that? Well, actually, I can, because that's our day right now. In our current cancel culture, it feels like false accusations is winning. But the church can show a better way. Christians can show a better way. The church must show a better way forward. We can strive to live in such a way that is gracious, loving, and merciful. We want truth to always abound, especially the truth about faith in Jesus Christ. We can be slower to speak and react, and perhaps I'm just speaking to myself here. Perhaps laying off the retweet or the repost button is a helpful rule. The church must resist the temptation to join in the desecration of other people, especially when we're talking about other brothers and sisters in Christ. You must stop playing the same game as culture by piling on, piling on top another person's plight, joining in the gossip and the slander, especially if that person's falsely accused. So up to this point, I have skipped possibly the most important verses in this chapter. It's verses 14 and 15 and verses 24 and 25. It's where we read Paul identify the reasons why the Jews were all worked up. Here's what Paul affirms why he's on trial. These are the affirmations. This is what I confess to you guys. This is what I know. Could you imagine yourself saying this? I worship the God of our fathers, I worship believing everything laid down in the law and the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then after the trial is over, Paul has an opportunity to preach the gospel directly to Governor Felix and his wife, who is a Jew. Here's how the chapter closes. After some days, Felix came with his wife, who was Jewish, she sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. He's given the gospel. He wasn't even released. 
He wasn't even set free. Here he is before the governor. He's like, gospel opportunity. And it says in verse 25, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. These three words in verse 15, hope in God, are explained in these other verses. Even though Paul is on trial and accused of crimes he did not commit, he hopes in God because of what God has said about what is going to happen to him after he dies. In the Law and Prophets, which is shorthand for the Old Testament, God speaks about a future hope. Paul hopes in God because there will be a day when those who have faith in Jesus and those who do not have faith in Jesus will be resurrected and judged. Paul has hope in God because there will be a day at the second advent when Jesus returns, judgment will be executed not only upon sin but upon the unrepentant and unfaithful sinner. Paul's hope in God is for the future His hope in God for the future puts into perspective his current trials, literally a trial, and his sufferings. Now think about that for your life. What kind of context do you put your sufferings in? Your trials. If you're anything like me, you get become very inward. You start having the pity party. Guilty. I know, it's a confession. That's where I go. I actually shut off and I say, yeah, yeah, I'm horrible. Yep. Everyone feels sorry for me. Not Paul. Not Paul. And it shouldn't be for us either. Our current sufferings and trials are in the context of a future hope, a hope that is in God. Hope in God. Let me end with this. We're in a season of hope, right? And Christians have every reason to be hopeful. Why? Our hope does not rest upon the Roman or American judicial system. Our hope does not rest upon the judge and jury of social media. Our hope does not rest upon the persecution or the perception and per- persecution we could receive in indirect ways from family and friends. Our hope rests and is secured in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hope. At the first advent, our Lord Jesus was born into this world on mission to save his elect sinners. Aslam of Canterbury said, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Only God could pay the debt. Now Christians wait for the second advent. Which will trigger the resurrection of the dead. In an ultimate and final judgment. Which will be administered. At that point all things will be made right. Perhaps the trials of this age do not go away for Christians. They go against followers of Jesus Christ. Suffering continues to abound. But Christians do not lose heart. Do not lose heart, Christian. But remain steadfast in hope. 
because there is a cosmic trial that will bring final vindication for Christ and his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.